freedom of speech, what is it? What does that freedom include? What happens when what you say clashes with someone's feelings or religious beliefs? And what counts as a violation of your freedom of speech? There's fierce conflict today over the issue of freedom of speech. And I wanted to explore this issue with uh, my colleague, Ankar Gade. Hi, Ankar. Hi, Ankar. Ankar is a philosopher here at the Institute. He's a senior fellow, chief philosophy officer, and a board member of the Ayn Rand Institute. He's written and uh, spoken widely on Ayn Rand's philosophy and its applications. Uh, so I wanted to start, Ankar, by getting to the philosopher's perspective on the issue of freedom of speech and, and the debates that exist today. Um, and maybe a helpful way to start is just to put some of the dimensions of the kinds of issues that are talked about, um, some of the things people are familiar with, and then kind of step back a bit and see how, how they fit together and how to, to entangle them. So just to give a few examples that people have heard about um, the conflicts on campus where students protest a coming speaker or they deplatform the speaker. There's concern about the freedom of the press when the president is talking about the press as the enemy of the people and talking about opening up libel laws to go after critics. And then we get sort of the really violent kind of clashes where Islamists burst into the, the editorial offices of the magazine Charlie Hebdo in Paris in 2015 and they kill most of the staff because the magazine is seen to have blasphemed against Islam, insulted Islam. And then there's a kind of what people talk about as a culture war issue of uh, Christians feeling like their, their views and their beliefs are, are, are offended uh, against and um, they don't get to have a say. So they, they, they will pick on things like, you know, an art gallery depicts a crucifix in urine, it's called piss Christ. And they'll say, well, if that's freedom of speech, it seems to be a double standard because why can't we have um, prayer in schools or in public places? Why is it okay to have pornography but not nativity scenes? And so there's this whole issue of um, a church, state, or a religion, politics kind of issue. So the goal I have for our conversation is to get a wider perspective to, um, and unpack some of these if we can, but really focus on so how to think about the freedom of speech uh, today. And I thought a good place to start, in the United States, we have the First Amendment, which guarantees the freedom of speech. Um, and you've written an article about the, this, the issue of church-state separation and, and how to think about intellectual freedom and sort of the freedom of speech. And it's in this book, which people can find, it's called Foundations of Free Society. It's um, Reflections on Ayn Rand's Political Philosophy. So I wanted to start there. So uh, help us sort of think about what does the free the First Amendment say about freedom of speech, and how does it relate to some of these issues uh, I brought up? And and yeah, I noticed you brought up so free speech issues, but you brought up church-state kind of issues. And in thinking of it from the context of the United States, it's natural to bring up both of those and think of them as related because the First Amendment, though I think it for sure has to be read as defending freedom of speech or of trying to secure each individual's right to freedom of speech. It does more than that. And if we, let me read the First Amendment. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or the right of the, peace, of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. That's the First Amendment. And it, bring, it brings in religion, freedom of speech, freedom of the press, freedom to assemble and to petition. And so to try to convince the government 
that it's doing something wrong or should be doing something different than it's doing. And why is this in one amendment? <clears throat> is it just like a, is it a grad bag? They have only had 10, so they had to list the grad bag in each one. I don't think that's the way to read the First Amendment. The First Amendment is protecting, a, is aimed at protecting a certain area in which the individual should be free. And I think the best way to conceptualize that er area is it's about intellectual freedom. It's about the ideas, opinions, beliefs that a person can hold. And holding them means that he's, he, he himself is believing them. So he's accepting them and can act on them. And so something like the free exercise of religion isn't just about what ideas you have in your head, but that you can engage in prayer with other people in other kinds of religious services and actions or activities. Um, so, and it, so it's about the holding ideas and opinions and being able to follow through in action. So to act on these. And the, I think of that as it's about intellectual freedom. And it's not as though the, the things listed in the First Amendment, if one's thinking about the whole purpose of the Bill of Rights and of what they're trying to do, they're trying to make explicit that there's these areas of life that a person is, should be free in. He has a right to take these actions without inter any interference, any interference from his fellow citizens or from their government. And it was not meant to be exhaustive but to, to spell out certain areas where you can easily imagine, and I think here particularly, you can easily imagine the government interfering and saying, no, we have the power to decide issues about religion, or we have the power to curtail what the press can publish. And if you think of, if you think of it, that one can easily imagine the government doing this, one of the reasons you can easily imagine it is that governments throughout history had done this kind of thing. So I think the way to read the First Amendment is they're especially singling out things that governments in the past have claimed as their prerogative. Like, so there were censors all over the place, including at the time um, uh, in the Enlightenment time when the United States is being created, where you need prior government approval to publish something. And there obviously had been all kinds of and, uh, cases of governments promoting certain religions, of establishing churches, that this is the state-sanctioned, supported church, you're gonna be taxed to fund this kind of thing, um, and, of, uh, and, and of prohibiting certain religions and saying, no, this is, you can't be a Protestant, this is a Catholic nation. And if you understand that these kinds of things about freedom of speech, of freedom of the press, freedom of religion, government had said, and prior to the creation of the United States, no, we have the power to control these things. What the First Amendment is saying is, no, you have not been granted the power to control these things. So let's, let's kind of dig in a bit on this. So you, you mentioned, and I think it, it's commonly known that the founders, particularly Jefferson and Madison, were influenced by the writings of the philosopher John Locke. And uh, so Help us understand what, why is he significant in, in sort of the, the outcome of having the First Amendment and what was the argument that he put forward? Yeah, you could say that the most important freedom and right that the First Amendment is singling out 
is this freedom of religion. But I think that's particularly in the context of governments in the past had um, said that we can control religious belief. We promote some, we penalize or outlaw and, and outlaw the community. We banish people, we execute people who have the wrong religious beliefs. That's especially what the First Amendment is focused on. It's the first thing that comes up in the First Amendment. And it's, it has the most description. So Congress can make no law establishing religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. And this will often be put as there's the establishment clause about religion and the free exercise clause. And you have to think of both of these clauses as working together in tandem. And what it, if you have a right understanding of both of these clauses, what they do is create a wall of separation between church and state. But that's a metaphor. And part of my article that you referenced earlier is exploring, like if all you have is the metaphor, whether there's a wall of separation and try to think just with a metaphor, you can't do that. You need the principle and the reasoning behind this metaphor of why then it's an eloquent metaphor to capture the idea, but you have to know the idea or the principle. And I think that what Locke is arguing uh, in his letter on toleration is for a separation between church and state. And it's a, it's a principled separation. And to understand it, um, what he's arguing, because this is what I think Madison and Jefferson as, as real, the real architects, I think of, of intellectual freedom and the intellectual freedoms that exist in the US, that they have a re very deep understanding of it. They're, they've read Locke, they're building on his argument. And the way he thinks about it, you can put it, one of the ways I put it in the article, because I think this captures very much the way Locke is thinking of it. It's, you have to think of this jurisdiction of the state and of the church. And if you understand that they're very different entities or organizations, you'll understand why they're separate and why they don't really clash or come into even touch that often. That, but you need both a conception. The state doesn't have unlimited power. It has very limited powers. And part of what the whole constitution is doing is trying to, of the, of the US is trying to specify these are the powers government has. These are the powers that it doesn't have and that we're not granting to it if you take the Bill of Rights into consideration. And that what the power of the state is about is essentially about securing the rights of each individual, some of which are listed in the Bill of Rights. But you establish government to secure these rights, as the Declaration of Independence puts it. And that's the government's only power. It's not there to try to make people better off, to try to educate them, to try one of Locke's running examples is the government's not concerned with the health of its citizens. Health's an important thing. Each individual should be concerned about like, what do you eat? What medicines do you take? The government's not, that's not its function. As long as you have the right to think about these things and then to, if you decide like taking this, uh, medicine or these herbs that will promote my health, then you're free to do that. You're free to think about it and then you're free to act on your judgment. That's what the government's protecting, that you're free in that way to act, but not, it doesn't have any goals about it's trying to promote the individual's health. 
And, and the same he says in regard to religious health, in effect, you can think about it like that, that yes, it's very important. Each individual should think about his own religious beliefs, why he thinks they're true, am I living up to them? Um, and, and so the, one of the ways Locke puts it, the government's not concerned with your health or the salvation of your soul, which is the kind of religious health you can think about. Like, that's the purview of each individual. So the government has a massive power, the power to coerce, to use force in society. It can't use that force to try to promote or penalize, and here particularly in religion, religious ideas. It's not in the job of promoting Catholicism or Protestantism or of trying to penalize them. That's each individual. And what a church is, so that's the power of, De and delimited power of the state. And what a church is, what its jurisdiction is, it's just, Locke says, a voluntary association of people. People who come together to worship God in the way that they think God should be worshipped. Now, or they, they, first they think there's a God and then that it should be worshipped. And if you disagree with the religious practices, ideas of a church, you can leave and you have to be free to leave. They can't coerce you to stay. You can set up your own another church. You can not go to church. That is, you're free to do that. So it's just a voluntary association. It doesn't have any power of coercion. And if you understand this, then they don't need to be intermingled. The, but to say there's a wall of separation does not mean the state can't do anything on church grounds. But all that it does is if there's violation of individual rights, on church grounds, the state can intervene. Um, and so if there's, I mean, to take one of Locke's examples, you can sacrifice a goat or a calf. A church can do that in, in part of its religious ceremony. It can't sacrifice a human being. And if it's trying to do that, the state has to step in and prevent that. And it's not doing it to either, it's not doing it to penalize those religious ideas, but rather to protect the individual rights of the guy who's going to be sacrificed and murdered. Um, and if you understand that, then you understand, okay, there's a wall of separation, but it doesn't mean literally that the state can't do anything in regard to a church. And part of what the wall of separation also means is that the state has the power to use coercion, to use force in society, pass laws that fine people, imprison people, even put people to death. That's its power. It's crucial that this power be directed by reason. And insofar as religion is not about reason, it's about faith, that, is, that can't wield the power of the state. You can't have a form of faith, and particularly of the kind of faith that is about emotions, emotionalism. There's no arguments there. If you allow the law to be based on emotions, I don't like the way that guy was looking at me, so let's put him in jail and that kind of thing you descend into tyranny. So the state has to be directed by reason. So there's no, re there's no um, it's not legitimate for a faith to try to wield state power. So both the state's not concerned with saying what ideas people can hold, religious ideas, and religion can't wield state power. And that's the idea, then there's a wall of separation between the two. So is it, is it fair to say that, so some people would argue that um, freedom of religion means the, the grounds of a church or something like the grounds of an embassy, a foreign embassy, like you, the church, the state can't 
but you're saying that the Lockean view is that's not right. A church, a church just is like a club, like a rotary club, or but it has this concern is with spiritual issues or religion, or so yeah. it's a, just as you wouldn't let the rotary club sacrifice a human being because obviously that's a violation of their that's murder. The same thing applies to the church. Yeah, and one of the examples I give in the article is of, of voluntary chess clubs, and I give that article uh, that as an example because I mean chess involves ideas. So the government's not concerned with like you're playing chess right or you're playing chess wrong. Yeah, but if they start killing people because well you lost the game and I'm going to kill you now, that is um, the state can step in. So it's not it's not a foreign embassy where it's like hands off, you can't touch anything, do anything, even if people are committing crimes. And just to get a sense of, so, Locke, so the, I take Locke's view to be quite radical given the time he was writing in and the, the degree to which religion and state were not, not just mingled, they were really entwined and you know, the, the kings would obey the Pope and the Pope was a kind of king and he had real, he had an army in many cases. So just kind of sketch out what that really looked like compared to what we have today. I mean, in, in some ways we have a separation and what Locke was arguing for was there should be one. Yeah, I mean, so in in this period, it but I mean, throughout sort of the rise of Christianity in the West, it has all kinds of state support. And you can think of, I mean, to call it the Church of England is it's the state established church, and it has all kinds of government sanction, including funding of it, and to the extent that other religions are permitted, they're second class, and they don't get all the state funding, state privileges. Um, and then, of course, in, in many of the areas, particular religions are banned. I mean, so if you think of the whole war between the Protestant and the Catholics throughout Europe, it's, you can hold one religion, and it's blasphemy, but it's illegal to hold the other, and we're going to persecute you or drive you out and kill you. And the Enlightenment is grappling with this context and this reality of, of, of years and years of religious war and conflict and grasping that part of it is about religions trying to wield state power and states trying to police religion and saying which you can hold and which you can't. And Locke, yes, it is a radical position and is arguing that both are wrong. Religion shouldn't wield state power. And if we say no religion can wield state power, that takes a major source of the conflict and, and what perpetuates the conflict away. If, it's, if, a, if a religion, and it's a radical to think of it as just, it's just a voluntary organization, like a chess club. It might be bigger than a chess club, but that's all it is. And it has the same rights and prerogatives as any other voluntary organization. And you wouldn't say, let's hand over state power to a chess club or the Rotary Club, and you don't hand it over to a religious organization either. And so it, it's religion can't get its hands on the power of the state, and the state should not be concerned with what religion and, and, and religious beliefs its citizens have. That's the job for the citizens to argue about and debate about, um, but it's not the issue of we're going to put some people in prison and execute some people. And so both aspects of it are very radical. And the norm was for religions to have influence and be able to wield state power in some kind of way. 
and for states to try to police religion in some kind of way. So I want to get to uh, one of the major points in your article and sort of relating the First Amendment, the issue of intellectual freedom and um, to how it came to be. But um, the, the, the big focus of your article is uh, Ayn Rand's conception of intellectual freedom and how that builds on in important ways, both the Lockean view and to the work of Jefferson and Madison, and but how she differs from them. So maybe you could sketch out, so wh what does she have in common with Locke and Jefferson and, and how does she, what does she add and differ from? So I think, yeah, that, that's a good question. And I think the way to think about it is what's happening with in the, in the American founding and particularly with Jefferson, I think he's on, of, of what I've read of the, of the founders, he's the clearest and deepest on this issue of intellectual freedom. And I don't think it's surprising then that the, the metaphor of a wall of separation, though you can find it in some other thinkers and you find something like it in Locke, Jefferson uses it in a letter, uh, 1802, I think, in describing what the First Amendment does, and then that's become sort of for, uh, the, a formulation used in the American context and in Supreme Court decisions. So I don't think it's an accident that it's Jefferson and it's traced to Jefferson, because he has a deep understanding of this, what the First Amendment is doing and the wider context, which is about intellectual freedom. And I think what Ayn Rand does then is make this fully explicit that the issue is about intellectual freedom and understands the full scope of intellectual freedom. So Jefferson and Madison, but I'm focusing on Jefferson, is extending it beyond Locke. So Locke is it's primarily and essentially it's about religion and the government. Jefferson's grasping that religion is just one set of ideas, religious ideas. There are other ideas. There's ideas in physics, the ideas in chemistry, and these are some examples that he gives, uh, and Newton's theories and Descartes' theories in physics and science. And is it, are we saying, well, okay, the, the government, it can't establish any religion and it has to permit the free exercise of religious beliefs. But for other ideas, could it establish a state scientific theory? Like Newton's, or he gives an example, like Descartes' theory. Imagine how hard it would be for Newton to gain traction if it, the, the Cartesian view in physics was supported, promoted, funded by the state. And it, it's, it's so, so is it, it's, are religious ideas some special category? And his view is no, they're not some special category. That, and, and, and so it gets increasingly put as the state is, cannot interfere in the realm of opinions religious opinions, secular opinions, scientific opinions. It's not its job to promote or to hinder any ideas or opinions. So in, in the way that the First Amendment, you can think of it of the Establishment Clause, you can think of that as promoting things. And the ultimate is to make, like, this is the state-sanctioned religious theory or the state-sanctioned physics theory. But there's all kinds of other forms of helping to establish. It means promoting. And the free exercise clause means the government can't promote a particular viewpoint and it can't penalize. And even if penalizing isn't, we don't ban it, but we make it harder for you to publish your books and to do this and that, that's penal, you're penalizing it, even if you haven't outright banned it. 
It can't do that in religion. And it's increasingly Jefferson's case. It can't do that for any opinions. It neither promotes nor penalizes. And one of the ways then it's put is that the government or the state must take no cognizance. And that means it doesn't take awareness. It's not concerned with a person's ideas and trying to promote him or penalize him because of his ideas. And one of the ways then it will be put is that the government reaches actions, not opinions. So it's only when a person takes an action, like say trying to sacrifice in a, a human being in a religious ceremony, then it's now, it's, you're not penalizing the idea, you're penalizing the actual action that's violating someone's rights. And the same if someone has, um, he has some view in economics say that life's dog eat dog. And if I don't beat you, you're gonna beat me. He can hold that view. If he starts now literally beating up the other person because he's worried that if he doesn't do that, that guy's gonna eat him. Then the government steps in and says, no, you're violating that person's rights and freedom of action. But again, it's not policing the idea, it's policing the action. So that is how um, it was increasingly put and particularly by Jefferson. And you can see that as a broadening. And you can then see why the first amendment isn't only about religion. It's crucially about religion because of the whole historical context. And that context exists in America. There were all kinds of, at the state level, established churches. And part of um, Jefferson's and Madison's push, certainly at the federal level, not to have that. But they understood that even at the state level, this is a violation of people's rights. And in this part of the battle in Virginia is to not have uh, the, the kind, kind of establishment of a church in Virginia and Madison and Jefferson are fighting that battle. So it's an understanding of it, the, why the First Amendment encompasses much more than just religion. And Jefferson will put it like this, that it, it's if you violate any of these, so if you start to interfere with religion or with speech or with the press, you're actually violating the, I forget exactly what his metaphor, but it's something like the umbrella that covers them all. Because it's there's one basic idea here. And, Ayn Rand, I think, fully grasps that and fully gets the extent that what it looks like for the government to intrude in the realm of ideas and ideas as such, not just religious ideas or not just when you're speaking, when it's about speech, but in the whole realm of ideas or of the intellect, which is why you put it as intellectual freedom. And to take two crucial instances and in which she disagrees with some of the founding fathers like Jefferson. So Jefferson has a kind of argument that you need government established education, at least at what we would now think of as at the primary level, because you need, if, if freedom and the American system of government is to endure long-term, if you're thinking of it as enduring across centuries, you need an educated citizenry. They, the founding fathers, I mean, understood the enormous achievement that they erected and the knowledge that it took. And if people lose all of this knowledge and don't know anything about history and never heard of religious wars and so on, they won't understand any of the real meaning of this creation. So you can't imagine the system enduring without an educated citizenry. So I guess the government has to provide at least some minimal level of education so that you have an education, educated citizenry. So that's part of an argument for public education. And then in the realm of production, 
of making things, of work, of establishing railroads and factories and farms, there was an allowance that government had, can, has a role to control some of this. And Ayn Rand's view is controls both in the realm of education and in the realm of production or controls on the mind. And that she's explicit about this and that if you take intellectual freedom seriously, you have to view those kind of controls as illegitimate. If we take the case of education, which I think is the easier to grasp case, and think again of the First Amendment, particularly the Establishment Clause or, and the Free Exercise Clause. When you have state-established schools, they have to teach something. They have to set a curriculum and have to say, we're teaching this and not this, these things. It's promoting certain ideas. And that means other ideas are not being promoted. And people's money is being taxed and taken away to promote ideas that they might not want promoted. And I mean, there's many things I disagree with about public education and what's taught in schools. And as a taxpayer, my money's taken to promote that. So there's establishment, not of a religious view, but of certain secular views. And the same in terms of penalizing, if it puts restrictions on what private schools can be established and so on. Even if, again, if it's, it has, there's not an outright ban on private schools in America at the primary level, but it is hard to do it. And some of those people, their money is being taken to fund the public school when they're trying to establish, so they're penalized. Even if not banned, they're penalized. And if one thought of it as in terms of religious schools, the government would not be, the First Amendment would prohibit the government from doing this. It can't establish any religious schools, even if it's not banning all other schools. And it would be understood as you're interfering with the free exercise because you're taking money from them, giving it to religious schools that they don't agree with. And that makes it harder for them to run their schools. That interferes with their free exercise. So it would be grasped if we're talking about religious schools. And Ayn Rand's argument is it doesn't change if it's non-religious schools, because it's still about ideas and about promoting some and penalizing some. And if you took intellectual freedom seriously, you would say, no, the government doesn't have this power. And if it's really true that the government is to take no cognizance of ideas, it has to be extend to it takes no cognizance of what is taught in schools and tries to control and police that. And that's not to say Jefferson's argument or, or first premise that without an educated citizenry, a, a free system of government can't endure. That's true. But that doesn't, you don't get the next step, which is, so the government has to educate the citizens. No, it's the citizens have to educate themselves and they have to educate their future generations if they want the system to endure. And that's Ayn Rand's perspective on it. So, and, it, and it's a much more consistent perspective, but it's consistent because I think she gets the principle fully explicitly and then is thinking, what is the full application of this principle? And the most radical, which we can talk about is the realm of production and economics. Yeah, I wanna to go to that because it seems like that would, that's, if, if people can get, okay, so there's nothing really different between religion and other ideas. Okay, I get that. But then what do you talk, you know, when you say, well, you know, 
if you're starting a company or a tech startup or launching an app or something, and, and what you're saying to me is, this is part of intellectual freedom? How, how, how is this the same issue? Yeah. And this, this is what's, I think, really radical about Ayn Rand. And she, would, she formulated it in, to make a deliberate comparison. So she would often say, I'm an advocate of laissez-faire capitalism, which means a system in which each individual rights are fully protected. And what that looks like in practice, she would say that in a, in a, in a real, full capitalist system. There's a separation of state and economics. And then she would say, in the same way and for the same reasons as a separation of state and church. So she's explicitly saying that that principle, which is right about state-church separation, if you grasp its fundamentals, extends much wider than church and state and extends all the way to state and economics. Um, but to understand why she thinks that, you have to get that she thinks the realm of economics, and which you can think of roughly as the realm of production and trade, is the a realm of ideas. That, and if you think of the American history, all the things invented in America, and so it's it's America's the largest economy in the world. So it's, a, it's the nation of, that produces the most. And think of all the things developed here in, uh, in a mass scale, from electricity to automobiles to the internet to Facebook to Google to Apple to Microsoft. These are all American companies, uh, extremely innovative, creating new things. How do they create all this stuff? It's not physical labor. That's not the primary in regard, there's obviously physical action involved in creating a company like Google or Microsoft, or if you go back um, uh, into the earlier American history, something like Standard Oil. Um, there, there's obviously all kinds of actions, but the root of the innovation, and so the root of all this new production is a mind or minds figuring out new kinds of things, new kinds of ideas, new kinds of technologies, new inventions, um, and how to then commercialize these things, whether it's a Google search engine, the uh, iPhone with Apple. Um, it's, it's major thinking that leads to production. And, and this is, I mean, you can use technology. This is true of the whole biotech world um, of all the new drugs and all the innovations in medical equipment I mean, when you go to the doctor and treatments now versus 150 years ago, I mean, you can't even compare to the, the way in which what we are able to do and able to buy and how pain-free it is and how easy it is compared to 150 years ago. This is all enormous productive innovation. And it's, again, it's all kinds of people thinking about how to do this. And when the government steps in and wants to control this area, what it is doing in the end from Rand's perspective is trying to control people's thoughts. So if the FDA comes in to take the, the biotech uh, area, and this is an example I give in the article, if it comes in and starts telling people, no, these are the drugs that the, only these drugs you're allowed to prescribe. And if an individual doctor thinks, no, but for this drug, 
for this set of patients who are really desperate or their symptoms are really unusual, I think it would be helpful for them, but it's not FDA approved for that. He can't do that. Or the FDA steps in and says, this is how you have to manufacture drugs in this kind of way, and you have to test them for safety and efficacy in this kinds of ways. And if a company has a view, no, there's better ways to test it, better ways to develop it. Um, of course, I'm interested in efficacy and safety and so on, but not to follow all these orders from the FDA of how to do all of this. It can't, it can't implement its own views and ideas. And if you had a regulatory agency like the FDA with the internet and all these companies telling Facebook and Apple and Google, oh, you want to develop a smartphone? This is how you have to do it. And you have to do this much research and then you have to show us that you would never have gotten the iPhone. Um, or you, at least you would never get the level of innovation that we've gotten with Google, Facebook, Apple, Microsoft, and so on. And what it is, is interference with productive thought in the end. That you can't take the actions means all this thinking is useless. It doesn't matter what you think, we're telling you what to do. And the result is that people will think less and less about, and, and the, the areas that are more controlled of the economy, um, you see way less innovation because what's the purpose of thinking? They're gonna tell me what I have to do regardless of what I think. And this is, I mean, one comparison again in the kind of medical industry, which I think is a good thing to think about is in comparison to when you go to the doctor and there's all, I mean, the, the so your, your family doctor, and there's the, this aspect of the health um, system is so heavily regulated. I mean, you know, all these forms you have to fill in and your insurance and you never can even figure out like, is this going to be covered or not? I'm almost, I'm 90% of the time surprised when I get a bill, both from the, I thought I was going to pay more yeah. or I thought I was going to pay, like, I have no idea what I'm going to be charged when I go in. And I've, we have good insurance. I mean, you know, we have good insurance. You still have no idea versus going to something like um, when, when people are getting corrective eye surgery and it, the, 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 these, these laser eye surgeries and so on. There's been such tremendous innovation. The process is relatively smooth when you go and it's not 10,000 forms. On. That's the, one of the less controlled areas of the health system. And you see more innovation in it. Um, and because there's more freedom in regard to this. And Ayn Rand thought of this, this is true economy-wide. And so what the separation of state and economics of thinking of it like um, the First Amendment, you can think of it the government is not there to establish anything. It's not promoting. So it's not there to promote home ownership. It's not there to promote, like these are companies, GM, oh, we have to have GM in America. So if it's failing, we have to prop it up. These are all things, try to establish certain economic ideas in the end. It's that GM is good, we couldn't live without it, so we have to promote it. Um, or home ownership is good, so we have to do all kinds of things to promote the people own homes and they don't rent. It's not about promoting, so it's not about establishing. And it's also not about interfering with the free exercise. And these kinds of controls that the FDA imposes, one should think of as this is interference with the free exercise of people's productive thought and then action. In the same way that if free exercise, interference with the free exercise of religion, it's about a person's religious beliefs 
and then putting those into practice. Like, no, you can't um, worship on your knees. You're not allowed to do this. And that, the, the, and the, or you can't have Catholic shrines and so on. And if you've been to countries in Europe and where, where, for instance, Catholicism was prohibited, you go into some houses and it's in the attic that they've constructed a shrine because it was illegal to have it. And that's interfering with the free exercise. And if you think of that, it's it, both ideas and action of following through an action on these ideas for religion. It's the same in regard to economics. It's productive ideas about this would be a good drug to manufacture and to prescribe, and then being able to manufacture it in the way that you want, and for doctors to be able to prescribe it when they think it would be good for their patients. That the government is interfering with the free exercise of that. And if you understand that, then you see it as, oh yeah, so this is an issue of intellectual freedom across the board, of person being able to think and then act on his reason judgment. And that's true in, the, in all these areas, but particularly it's true in education and production. And so she was adamant that what freedom means, and if you understand, as Jefferson put it, sort of the umbrella that covers the things listed in the First Amendment and more than those things, because it wasn't trying to be exhaustive. The issue is intellectual freedom, and you have to think of both thought and production as they have to be free. The government's not there to penalize or promote in this both of these areas. And so she, one of the ways she would put it is a free mind and a free market or corollaries. And that you can see as a different perspective on there's a separation of state and religion and a separation of state and economics. And that there, it's the same issue. And that's why she thinks of them as its corollaries. A free mind, that's separation of state and church and more broadly state and, and intellectual ideas. And a, a free markets is a separation of state and economics. So I want to just uh, so circle back to some of what I raised earlier in the last few minutes. I heard you say in an interview we did with, uh, on Dave Rubin's show, The Rubin Report, that um, Ayn Rand's philosophy is the philosophy that Enlightenment deserved but never had. I'm not, that's a paraphrase. But so the, the idea that she's sort of the culmination of the, the best elements of the Enlightenment, the stress on the individual and on reason. I definitely, I mean, that really comes through in this idea that production and ideas, both realms need to be free. Uh, just to sort of go back to the couple of examples I, I opened with, I guess, it, would, you, would you think of the, th the two examples of you know, so the, the, the two kinds of religious encroachments on freedom of speech? So the, the, so the Islamist movement, their attempt to kind of curtail uh, depiction or discussion of Islam, and the, the kind of activist Christians in the sort of what people think of as the culture war, demanding um, that their views be, you know, like we, we want a crucifix on state property, we want a nativity scene in the courthouse, we want the Ten Commandments in the court. I mean, in, in some ways that I think of those as they're, they're sort of throwbacks to the pre-enlightenment way of living. Like the religion is, in their views in both cases, it deserves an elevated status. And, and one of the achievements, you know, as you were saying in, in Locke's view is, no, religion just is a, a, a per, you know, a, an association of, of people who have a certain goal, and that's for them. There's no special status, there's no kind of uh, elevated uh, position they, sh they should have. Yeah, 
I think there is that element, but I think one needs to distinguish, nevertheless, the case of Islam and the, uh, however you want to put it, the Islamist, the Islamic totalitarians, and the context in the U.S. Because I think it's one needs to understand in regard to the Islamist and Islamic totalitarianism that it's a repudiation of any idea of state church separation. So it's it's the demand that it's going to be uh, pursued by the force of the gun that a religion wield total state power. So to call it Islamic totalitarianism is to say st the state is going to have total power and that power is going to be wielded by the, the dictates of what we think Islam says. And that is, I mean, it's the, it's the opposite of the separation of church and state. It's that a, a, a church or a, a sect should have total state power. And that's what they're after. And one has to understand that. And what in, you brought it up earlier on in our discussion in terms of freedom of speech, you have to understand that. And then the Western response to it reveals how little is left of the understanding of the arguments behind the First Amendment, why we have freedom of speech, why we have a separation of church and state, what that means. Um, the, there's so much capitulation to the Islamists when they make these demands that, well, may, do people have to say these offensive things and do they have to write with the Charlie Hebdo? I mean, I know you've seen an enormous amount of this. Of, do they really have to write this and be so nasty towards religion? And or don't they have some of the blame? And um, I mean, that's some of the better things. So there's, there's no recognition and no real, at a cultural level, attempt to protect them. That, that this is really, really bad that we have a religion crusading for, or a religious sect crusading for total state power. It, it would undo everything about our freedoms if we allowed this. There's no such principled opposition. And there's no understanding of, look, it's really, really bad if you allow a faith. And, and with faith means that it's not based in reason to direct state power. None of that happened. Um, and you can go back before the, I mean, as you know, before the Charlie Hebdo to the the reaction to the fatwa and Rushdie, it, there was, was no, at, at a kind of political cultural level, there was essentially no real defense of this principle that is an enormous achievement. That's one context. In, in the American context, I think there are some religionists who do want to do away with the separation of church and state. And they want, now here it's some, some, Protestant, our version of Protestantism, so some Protestant sect or sects that wants to wield state power and be able to ban pornography, uh, abortion, that, that have all kinds of laws that are based in their religious faith and is trying to um, uh, propagate and enforce their religious faith. So I think there is that element, but there's an element, or at least what's more confusing in the debate is they can point to things that are legitimate grievances in the way that I think the Islamists cannot point 
or, or don't, but when, the, when they say they hate the West, that's not a legitimate grievance. When they hate all the things that bring freedom, they're anti-freedom. In the American context, there are people who can get, but can't fully work out. There's something wrong, and go back to the case of education, and it's not an accident that so much of the debate and the controversies pertain to education, precisely because the government has made it public. So you have a complaint if it's the public schools can contain all kinds of things and all kinds of viewpoints, including very bad and irrational viewpoints. They can promote, um, if you think in the 60s and promoting uh, the hippie generation, there was a lot of uh, in the educational system of saying these are the great avant-garde rebels and and I mean much if not the I mean I think in the end the essence of the hippies is re was really perverse. You can have all that going on in public schools and public universities, but you can't have any religious symbol at all, a nativity scene. None, all of that is prohibited, and they rightly feel like, like that's making us second-class citizens. And there's something wrong with that. Now, the solution to it is not give more power to religion so they can enforce their um, irrational dogmas as well. It's rather to say, no, there's something wrong with the government promoting any set of ideas. And the result is, and, and particularly in the context of public education, because of the First Amendment, it's, well, we can't do anything that would establish religion. So we can establish, and what, how it, and I think the way to think about it is, we can establish all kinds of ideas. So we can have the curriculums and set it how we want, but we can't do anything that establishes religion. And that's this way in which then it's, you can think of it as it's really penalized then because everybody else can get state funding and state power. And Ayn Rand commented a lot on this, that people like uh, a figure in, in, in psychology, B.F. Skinner, who she thought is it's his views are irrational, they're anti-American, they're anti-freedom. He can get state funding and does get state funding, but anyone who has any kind of religious view can't. And you think of that as that's a real penalization. And that's some of the context. So they have some legitimate complaints. Their solution almost always is not the right solution and is more, it pushes in the direction of more anti-freedom and more violation of people's rights. But that's, I think of that case is different than the, uh, the, when one's thinking of the people assassinating the, the writers and editors of Charlie Hebdo. Uh, so I, just to wrap up, uh, a lot of the, the article that you were referencing throughout our conversation, is it, if people want to explore it, and I think they should explore the book itself, it's, it can be found in this book, Foundations of a Free Society, Reflections on Ayn Rand's Political Philosophy. You have two more than one chapter in there. There's another. Yeah, and, and the chapter on church-state separation was also published on New Ideals, so they can, right. right. Yes, we'll, we'll link to that in the show notes. So uh, thanks very much, Ankara, it's been really enlightening. No, thanks, Alon. You've been listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. If you like what you hear, leave us a review, share with a friend, and subscribe to our other podcasts. This podcast was made possible by donors to the Ayn Rand Institute. Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member. Go to aynrand.org forward slash membership.